And I think that while people talk about jobs, we underestimate how important a job is, not just to financial security, but it's also a source of identity. A lot of people, when they lose their job, they lose their sense of identity, their sense of purpose in life. Welcome to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman at Carney. This season on Joy at Work, we're talking to people who are using a joy mindset to create major transformation. Today, we're going to take a broader look at the issues that affect people beyond their workday. As we talk about building a more joyful and equitable workplace, we naturally think about how to build a more joyful and equitable world. To help us do that, I'm welcoming Cheryl Wu Dunn. Cheryl is an author and award-winning journalist and business and finance consultant. She was the first Asian-American to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism, an honor she received for her work reporting from China on the Tiananmen pro-democracy movement. She has chronicled the need for social change in many ways at home and abroad. She has co-written five nonfiction books with her spouse, Nicholas Kristof. Their latest book is Tightrope. Americans Reaching for Hope. So a hearty welcome to you, Cheryl. Welcome. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. You've written a number of critically acclaimed books about the effects of poverty and the power of altruism. I'd love to explore with you the overlaps and connections between the business world and the realm of altruism and helping others. Well, those are very large topics. If you look at some of the work that we did with Half the Sky, which came out about uh, more than a dozen years ago. That was the first book where we really started sort of melding the challenges of oppression, of poverty, with solutions that actually could really bring economic change. That's really where we understood that poverty is not just about sort of, you've got to help someone just because it's the right thing to do, but it's also economically the good thing to do for those people to actually help themselves. And that helping other people isn't just about, okay, we have to do something because we're wealthy, but but you want people to help themselves and the best way to do it is to create programs and systems that allow them to thrive. So let me give you an example. In Half the Sky, we wrote about a woman who was based in Burundi. That culture was so stifling to someone like her. She wasn't even allowed to handle money and she wasn't even allowed to leave her home unless she got permission from her husband. So when they would go shopping together, she would carry the baskets and she would point out what she needed, they would put it in the basket, she would carry the basket and her husband would pay for it because she couldn't handle money. So there was a little micro savings group in the village and she had to plead for her husband to let her go and join the group. And he kept saying no, no, no. So finally she got very clever. She decided to create a wonderful dinner for him and then she sweetened him up with that and then he finally let her go. So she went to this little micro savings group and what happens is that all the women bring like a dime and they pool it and they lend it to one woman for that session and they decided to lend it to our friend. And so our friend invested in a potato crop and the potato crop did really, really well. So she made a lot of money from it. And so she took the money and she started investing in other crops. Pretty soon she was like Miss Moneybag. She did so well. She was so successful. She became known as the first female entrepreneur in the village. And then she started mentoring other people. This is the type of unleashing of entrepreneur spirit that you want to see. And so that's the kind 
kind of solutions that we see can be implemented in many different areas. And it's extremely uplifting when you hear about these kinds of opportunities. How do we make these situations less accidental and more structural? The micro savings phenomenon has become much more institutionalized. But here back at home, what we are seeing is that there are lots of programs that we didn't even know about. We know about the problems, but we didn't know that there were so many people who were implementing programs that were really successful. And so the idea is that you find these experiments around the country and you say this is something that is worth replicating around the country. In Tightrope, the most recent book that we did that you mentioned, we focus on a program called Women in Recovery in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So Tulsa, Oklahoma had a huge problem with women being put in jail. So they knew they had to do something and they were wondering what is going on here? So it turns out that there were a lot of women who were committing crimes mainly because they were addicted to drugs, alcohol, or some substance. And so they created this program. And there's a lot of research that goes into the development of these programs. It's not just, you know, snap, let's, let's do this program. A lot of research that pointed to one way of working with the local courts, the local jails, the local healthcare authorities to figure out if the reason for a woman's criminality is that she's addicted. And in that program, she's diverted from a jail sentence. She goes through detox. She sees doctors, dentists. She learns skills that she can use on the job, learns how to use a computer. And then they get internships as part of this program. And often when they graduate in less than two years, they actually have a job because this program works with local employers who are willing to hire women who have felony convictions or have been in jail. It's been around seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. It's saved about 70, 80 million dollars just in jail costs, in court costs, in healthcare costs. That's a real benefit to society. And it's programs like that that we think should be replicated throughout the country. In your newest book, Tightrope Americans Reaching for Hope, you focus in particular on the world's most developed economy, the United States. I was wondering, what surprised you when you researched and wrote this book about this topic? Well, there are two surprises. One that really shocked us is how much poverty and not just material poverty, but also psychological and spiritual poverty there is in the US. It's stunning. Some of the people that we talked to were just as sort of devastated as some people that we saw in the developing world who have nothing to their name. To see the breakdown in household dysfunction was pretty stunning and in places that you never expected. And we discovered that a job is so important. And I think that while people talk about jobs, we underestimate how important a job is, not just to financial security, it's not just an income stream, but it's also a source of identity. A lot of people, when they lose their job, they lose their sense of identity, their sense of purpose in life. And the second thing, there are so many people in America who are really trying out solutions to bring about change. There are really inventive people here that are not just focusing on the next startup that's going to become the next Google, but who are really trying to bring that change to help address some of the problems that we have in this country. There's sort of a renaissance that's going on at universities that are doing research in some of these issues, and they're coming up with such great ways to address some of these problems. We need more funding, of course, but I really hope that they can start scaling these solutions because there really are a lot of solutions. What are the symptoms of that psychological and spiritual poverty that you allude to? 
the signs of it were evident even before the pandemic. In the three out of four years prior to the pandemic, the census data basically shows that life expectancy for Americans was falling, which is stunning because it hadn't happened like that for a hundred years prior. We have to stretch back to the earlier pandemic of 1918 to see the same kind of decline in life expectancy. And why was life expectancy declining before the pandemic? So two economists at Princeton, Ann Case and Angus Deaton, looked at census data and they saw that basically what was happening was that most Americans, their life expectancy is rising, which you would expect. But there are a couple of segments in the U.S. where the life expectancy is dropping, and that's basically white, middle-aged, working-class people, men and women. They attributed the early deaths to deaths of despair, deaths from alcohol-related incidents, death from overdose of drugs, and death from suicide. There's a greater number of suicide. In fact, before the pandemic, we were at post-World War II highs for the rate of suicide. Obviously, something's going on there in the working class that most of the country was sort of unaware of. We haven't been addressing it. But you see some of the symptoms of this despair in the election of Donald Trump in 2016. He appealed to the working class, that man or woman who really was despairing because no one was thinking about him or her. The pandemic obviously made things a lot worse for the working class. We've seen the greater inequities that the working class are really essential workers who basically <laughs> needed to keep working during the pandemic. They may not have had PPE, but I guess there's a silver lining in the sense that suicide rates seem to have abated a little bit during the pandemic as people started to worry about their own survival. They don't have time to think about whether they're happy or not. They're just worried about survival, perhaps. That's one explanation. Now, in the title of your book, you call it Americans Reaching for Hope. In terms of solutions, who's reaching back? Government, private sector, jobs, public-private partnerships, individuals, uh, self-help? Any insights on the solutions for reaching out or reaching back? There is a wide array of solutions. There really is the gamut. But I think what happens is that there's this narrative about lifting yourself up by the bootstraps, that it should really only be you who does it yourself. In, in Tightrope, we address that. And while we say, yes, you obviously need to do something yourself, I think that that narrative, that personal narrative about how this is your rut that you dug out for yourself, you got to get out of it yourself, we ascribe that too much. And a lot of times people just need a little bit of a nudge. They need a little bit of help. One of my other podcast guests mentioned there's no such thing as white collar and blue collar. There's probably a no collar society where different types of jobs and vocational training make sense. And it's not one or the other. We need to be more flexible in the workforce and the jobs of the future, too. And I think what's really surprising, too, is that we thought globalization is just something that's natural. It was going to be the evolution of the world. And to a degree, that's true. I'm not, I'm not sure that we could have changed anything. I don't think that we could have worked against the tide of globalization. We always said, OK, yes, the economy will adjust, people will adjust, it's going to create new jobs. Yes, it did. But what we neglected is that the very people who lost those jobs, we just forgot about them. We said, okay, they have to fend for themselves to find new jobs. Whereas other countries, globalization has hit them too. It's hit Germany, it's hit Canada, but they have different ways of adapting that are much better for their societies. So one really interesting example that we write about in Tightrope is right after the financial crisis, when the automakers had to lay off a lot of workers because the economy was collapsing, they 
often laid off workers in Detroit as well as in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. So you had a really good way of comparing what happened in those two different places. So in Detroit, what happened was the workers got laid off, almost like it's a one industry town, but they got laid off. They lost their health care, which added to the stress on a family when the breadwinner loses the job, the family uses the health care. And if there aren't that many other industries in that town, how do you find a job? But over in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, what happened there? Well, the workers, they lost their job. Yes, that was bad. But they did not lose their health care because there is national health care in Canada. And then beyond that, the government stepped in and said, wait a second, let's see where there are other jobs, what other industries might be able to use and absorb these workers. And they saw that healthcare could use a lot of these workers. So they facilitated these training programs, retraining programs to take these auto workers and teach them things in the healthcare industry. Some of them became nurses, some of them became technicians, but they were able to help retrain these people so that they were able to find new jobs fairly quickly, ushered back into the workforce. They didn't get depressed or self-medicating or falling into a downward spiral the way we saw what happened in Detroit. So people say, oh, well, that's big government, but it's big government with a little G. And that's because the government didn't stay there and give them subsidies. The government helped facilitate for that short amount of time that they needed a training program that allowed them to get back on their feet. And that's what the goal is. We need to take much more seriously the idea of retraining people when there are huge layoffs. And we need to figure out how we administer these training programs and take them more seriously. In the U.S., we've never taken retraining seriously. We think, okay, well, here's a few dollars and create a program. They're never going to work. But in fact, they do work very well in other countries. That's a great example of public-private partnership that's agile and focused on solving the problem that we've got your back in some sense. Cheryl, you've had a fascinating career. It's a global career. You've looked at every topic imaginable. What are some moments of joy for you personally that stick out over this history and this travelogue? I would say that when you feel that you can help someone or you feel that you can really do something that has an impact, I think that's when we all feel a certain amount of satisfaction. Yeah, we write about the challenges, we write about some of the really depressing topics, but we also write about the solutions because that's so uplifting. There are so many social entrepreneurs in the U.S. who have come up with ways to help other people and and create programs that actually can be replicated over the years. Now, just on a personal side, how do you continue to get inspired, re energize, create joy in your current day-to-day work life? So I'm now also working with young companies that have a positive impact on society. In some cases, maybe triple bottom line, but mostly double bottom line. Some are in the cancer field where they can come up with a new way to screen for cancer or another way to come up with a very highly accurate test for all sorts of infectious diseases. And another one is trying to focus on pain management without pharmaceutical pills. which obviously is a really big topic. It's it's really exciting. Well, what I hear also from you, Cheryl, is that you're getting inspiration and joy from finding solutions. Everyone wants to be able to sort of solve things, right? But when you can solve things that also help society, that's great. We've been studying on this topic, obviously, in the podcast, how we could transform work and the workplace to make it more joyful and just in your various travels, in the community transformations, public sector, country changes that you have been seeing and being a part of. What would you like to see happen in the next chapter? What changes do you hope to be a part of? 
looking ahead. A lot of the recommendations we made at the end of Tightrope, some of them actually seem to be proposed now. So for instance, child allowances, that is something that we think has been so successful in Britain and elsewhere that we think, wow, it's great that it's being proposed here. And I hope it does become something that's more permanent than just because of the post-pandemic situation. There are a lot of other small kind of programs that can have huge impacts. So for instance, in early childhood education, when we think education is huge area that really needs to be fixed in the U.S. on a, a ranking by the Social Progress Index. That's something that Michael Porter at HBS has actually created based on the research by three Nobel Prize winners in economics. And basically on a huge number of metrics, I forget how many, it's like, you know, 30 or 40, 50 metrics. It ranks the top 100 plus countries. And the U.S. you'd think would be on number one in a lot of the areas, right? Well, no way. It's actually way below. I mean, it's below a lot of the European countries on many metrics, including education, healthcare, even internet access, it's not number one. Clean water access, it's not. It's way down there. So it would be great to see the U.S. start climbing up the ranks again, because we as a society are not doing so well the way we expect that we should be doing as the number one country. We still like to think of ourselves as the number one country. But if we don't improve our education in the next generation, when they come to mature, we're not going to be in as good a spot as we are now unless our education is improved at all levels. Because when you look at China, when you look at India, 1.4 billion people in those two countries, basically, how can we compete with 320 million people unless we have all Americans basically operating on full cylinders, we're just not going to be able to compete. So that's why it's really important for as many Americans as possible to be reaching their full potential because don't we all want to be on the winning team? Don't we all want to be on the number one country, the number one nation, the number one economy in the world? We're not going to be there if we don't really try and improve a lot of these issues in the country. It sounds to me that if you had a magic wand, you might view competitiveness and education in particular as an area. Would that be true? Well, education is a driver and it's not enough just to have the elites be really highly educated, which we are, but it's not enough because you need all Americans to be very well educated for them to reach their full potential to compete against China. One in seven Americans doesn't graduate from high school. It's stunning that we should have that weak result. America was a pioneer in mass education, secondary school education, but where are we? I think you got your finger on the right point there, which is long-term commitment to the educational life and the mental life of students and future workers, future citizens, future voters. This all goes together. Cheryl, I do want to talk for a minute about the issues facing Asian Americans. Obviously, a topic these days and what we've alluded to is the sense of belonging. And there's just just a bout of anti-Semitism, anti-immigration, anti-Muslim, anti-Asian, unfortunately. And you and I have, for different reasons, probably feel that pain even more. How does your identity influence you in this environment? It's really a shame to see this. I think that Asian Americans have kind of been misunderstood for many, many years. I do think that it stems from the pandemic and it didn't help that President Trump made fun of the virus and called it names. That name calling really allowed people to start name calling Asian Americans and to really take that even a step further to abusing them, taking violent actions against them. And so I'm very sorry to see that. It's great to see that there was a law that President Biden signed to actually create some foundation for what we can do to help Asian Americans. But I also think that a lot more education needs to happen, that Americans have to learn more about 
Asian Americans, what their background is, where they came from. They didn't all come from China and they didn't all bring the coronavirus with them. But like even in universities, there are only a few universities that teach Asian American studies or ethnic studies. I think there's just a little bit more understanding of the background, but I do think that a lot more understanding and education needs to be done for people to appreciate the wonderful things that Asian Americans have brought to this country as well. Well, yeah, there's a lot of simplistic thinking, stereotyping, discrimination, which existed far before all the political movement and uproar in the recent past. And you and I, of course, have grown up in different worlds. I was an immigrant myself. And you see ignorance, you see blind spots, you see microaggressions, actively intended (laughs) aggressions all the way to the other end of the extreme, which includes violence, which unfortunately we see happening. So it's a spectrum of behaviors and it's probably a spectrum of responses, right? You say education, awareness. We're not just a model minority. We're not just a quiet minority. We're just like anyone else. But the other thing is that I'm also very practical in the sense that, look, Asian Americans look different, you know, and we don't want to change the way we look. So we will be looked upon as foreigners in many instances. There was a survey of Americans and they asked, which actress is foreign, Lucy Liu or, and it was, it was a British actress. And guess who they thought was the foreign one? Well, it was Lucy Liu, but she was born in the US and the British actors and actress is actually from Britain. So we will look foreign. And look, there are going to be racial differences and that's it's just a you know, matter of fact. And so we need to learn how to adapt to that and work with that. And in many ways, we want to be different. We don't want to blend into just sort of a crowd. We want to stand out in a good way. And so it's a matter of just trying to work with what we have and make more people understand that uh, we can bring a lot to society and give us the benefit of the doubt. Well, I mean, it's a biological reality that we are all individually different. It's also a biological and social reality that ingrained from the beginning of time that, uh, you know, human Humans are also afraid of things that are different instinctively. You know, is this something going to hurt me? So getting that right balance is so key. And then we'll have a better, hopefully a more joyful and more just society and a joyful and just workplace. So thank you very much, Cheryl, for taking the time to share some of your thoughts today. Great. Thanks for a great conversation, Alex. If you're looking for ways to transform your work and create more joy. Subscribe to Joy at Work wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you're finding joy at work. Share on social media with the hashtag joy at work. Did you know that we offer joy workshops? Our interactive workshops help leaders learn how to create joy, lead more confidently, and build more empathetic and human workplaces. We've already worked with several multinational corporations to bring more joy to their work. If you'd like to learn more, email our team at joy at carney.com. Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward during uncertain times. Learn more at carney.com slash joy at work. And if you enjoy this show, check out the other shows in the Carney Podcast Network, including A World Transformed, Reimagining the Future, hosted by my colleague and chairman emeritus, Paul Laudacina. It's a fascinating look at how our current crisis will propel us into a new reality. And on Inside the Mind, Carney's Consumer Institute interviews consumer communities to uncover how and why people shop today and what their behaviors mean for the future of consumer goods and retail companies. You can find these shows wherever you listen to podcasts.